We're joined from Belfast tonight by pianist Ruth McGinley and composer, arranger and musician Neil Martin. Aura is their new album and this is Nian Oelig or Boyle's Daughter. That is Nina Whalig or Boyle's Daughter, a story of unrequited love and the opening track from Aura, a new album from Derry pianist Ruth McGinley and composer, arranger Neil Martin. Aura is an album of reimagined Irish airs presented in a more classical music language for piano played by Ruth. There are 10 tracks on the album, some of them well known, including the likes of Denny Boy and My Lag and Love. The double notch of the album takes place tomorrow night at the Contemporary Music Centre on Fishamble Street in Dublin. And joining us from our Belfast studio is Ruth McGinley and Neil Martin. Neil, if I can begin with you and that track, Boyle's Daughter, is that representative of what you and Ruth are doing in this album? Yeah, I, I, I think it is, Kay. Um, it, it's such a glorious air and it's uh, an air that deserves a bit of time and kind of demands a bit of time around it. And I think it sets out the stall for the album. I think it's a, a, a fairly indicative of opening track of, of where we head with the album. Yeah. Now, you you heard that song way back in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. I, fir- I first heard it from uh, My Redney Waney the Donegal fiddle player and singer with Altan, uh, amongst other things. And uh, I I remember just being caught immediately by the otherworldliness of of the air. And I know that the air was collected indeed by Seamus Ennis in Gidor around the early 1940s as well from a a singer from up there. So it's it's very rooted, very embedded in Donegal, which is a part of the world that I I get to as often as I can. I kind of want to be from Donegal, if you know what I mean, although I'm a Belfast man. Yeah, Ruth uh, is a lot nearer to Donegal than you are, Neil. Mm, she is. Uh, Ruth, the two of you have, have worked together previously uh, with the Fuse Ensemble when you worked to celebrate the life of another pianist and another great composer, Miholo Sulawan. Is traditional music and traditional layers something you were always interested in exploring? Um, I suppose, obviously, being from Derry, very close to Donegal, um, recording this album and doing this project with Neil has really, I suppose, has reminded me and, and sort of reconnected me with my childhood in terms of, you know, both my grannies were Donegal women from you know, Buncrana and Malinhead and uh, it, it really spending time with these airs and recording them very much reminded me of the, the family nights around the fire in Malinhead where, you know, Irish airs would be sung. So it... I suppose it's it's very much transported me back to that time, and you know it's. I suppose as as we get a little bit older, I'm not as young as I used to be. Um, you definitely get that little reconnection with you know with where you're from, and this has been a, a gorgeous journey back into that for me. And Boyle's daughter, there you can just feel the emotion of it. As a pianist, is it hard to get that emotional heft into these beautiful airs? Not whenever you're working alongside somebody as wonderful as Mr. Neil Martin here, because he he fills fills my my head with you know his own stories, I suppose, about um, these song airs and where he found them, what they mean to him, you know, maybe who uh, who he heard them perform perform them, and and also just you know the initial story where they come from. So you know the, the days of recording 
myself and Neil and uh, Al McMillan, who was the sound engineer, we just we sat, we spoke about the stories, we spoke about the music. And for me, that that helped me immensely just connect with, you know, what the music is about on a deeper level than just, you know, the obvious fact that they are they are absolutely beautiful, beautiful melodies. I mean, you know, you can't argue with that, but actually taking it to a deeper emotional level. And uh, I mean, they're, they're never really a, sto- a story of pure happiness and joy. <laughs> they're, they're, there's definitely a lot of sadness and a lot of struggle in there. But um, personally, I, I would tend to be quite an emotional person, an emotional uh, musician. So I think that's why this album particularly has just been been so beautiful to record. And I, I had um, the Belfast launch of of the album just at the weekend there. And I was saying to, to Neil beforehand, it was just, it didn't feel like a concert or a gig or work. It was such a pleasure just to play these live for people and just to really feel people's um emotional uh, reaction to them. It was a it was definitely a beautiful experience. And Neil, Ruth is talking there about that recording experience and you're there and I know you've played with Ruth before and you played the cello and you play the, the pipes. But are you there just with your ear in the recording studio? Yeah, I suppose ear and as well, uh, because, uh, you know, I care so much about the airs and you know, you spend a lot of time arranging them and thinking about them. And uh, Ruth and I have enjoyed this project, I suppose, a couple of years. We're working on this now, something like two years. And a lot of it was written in lockdown as well, which was a great time actually to be writing things, do you know? So I think when you invest that much time and energy into it, you just hope that in the recording that whatever you can bring by being there helps them across the line. And also the venue, Kay, that we recorded in Rosemary Street Presbyterian Church in Belfast is a very, very beautiful oval-shaped church, late uh, late 18th, early 19th century church uh, that is perfect for music. And it also was the cultural and artistic epicentre, that part of Belfast, back in the time of the Harper's Festival of the 1790s. So, we're kind of we're re-engaging with that part of Belfast as well in the place where we recorded the album. So all of those things are important. I think as 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 much of that emotional outpouring and detail mm-hmm. and help that the room gives us and we can give to each other and I can give to Ruth. And when Ruth played, sure, every take was an absolute gem. So it really was a, a glorious project from from top to bottom. And before you got to the recording studio, when when you are putting these traditional layers into uh, arranging them for a classical piano, what is your aim and why is it that you think the piano can bring more or something different or something that has been Mm -hmm. missing to traditional music and traditional layers? Well, for quite some time, I I have wanted to write uh, and arrange a lot of these glorious Irish airs for uh, not any pianist, I don't mean that any pianist, but someone who would be very adept uh, at reading uh, classical music. Like the, the written in keys, for example, that we wouldn't often play in traditional music, D flat and G flat and A flat and those keys because they're gloriously warm keys. But also, I, as well as, as writing it out in a very kind of accurate way, um, I, I, I want to plumb the depths of some some other harmonic language. Within a lot of traditional music, you know, there's a kind of standard harmonic language 
but with uh, someone as fluent uh, at, at piano and reading and technique as, as Ruth, you can harmonically go to places that maybe you couldn't really go uh, in, in, in kind of standard interpretation of traditional music. And the piano is, is the perfect instrument for that. It has, you know, you've all those octaves and all those notes and, you know, you can you can do so much and extend harmonic language that, that you can't do in other instruments. I, I, I think that was... That was the reasoning behind it, really. Yes, and Ruth, I know you were often looking, I think it was, I was reading that you were looking for a, a tango score at one stage and you're, you you look for something that suits what you as a pianist are looking for. And when it came to those airs, what was it about what, what Neil was offering that you went, oh yes, the, he's got me? Hmm. <laughs> well, I think the fact that Neil and I have worked together on several occasions and genuinely, you know, you know, you'll always say thank you to who you're working with, but it, it was a very much a, a genuine, um, you know, kind of understanding that how Neil made music was was something that I felt very deeply also. So um, what Neil was speaking about, his use of harmony, his use of, you know, close harmony, this kind of crunchiness, almost a little jazz element to some some chords in these traditional song airs that, again, you probably before wouldn't hear. Um, the other thing being just really indulging in, in the space, in the music, you know, um, it's something I'm a massive, massive fan of. I, I was um, in my in my piano lessons when I was a young girl with John O'Connor. We always experimented about, you know, pausing and really letting a note linger and letting your audience or your listener just, you know, be on the edge of their seat. And that's something that's very much in the scores um, that Neil um, had sent off to me for for this project. So that that space and and just how he's even just used the melodies, how they travel between, you know, different hands and just how it all flows together. It's uh, yeah, And Ruth, it's, do you read the scores then and then do you go straight to the piano and work them out or are you going there, first of all, luxuriating in reading? Oh, well, I would just, I, I'm, I'm going to the score first. I'm spending a little bit of time. Um, would always have a, a little phone call, I suppose, just for me to find out, you know, what is the song air? What's the meaning? What's the feeling behind it? And and just for me, just spending time where it obviously physically gets into my, my, my muscles, my physical muscles, and then where it just, you know, hopefully just sinks into your, into your soul. So let's hear one of the songs off the album. This is Boy in the Glen. I hear what you're saying there, Ruth, those wonderful spaces and time and the pauses. 
Um, absolutely. You know, it's uh, again something even just in, in my in my life, you know, when I was younger and I was doing the whole classical concert pianist soloist and I was playing a lot of notes, you know, playing the Rachmaninoff concertos and uh, and then, you know, you get a little bit older and you try to simplify your life. And for me, that's very much um reflected even in the music that I love to make these days. So and, and even just giving people, the listener, a chance to just stop. Almost I think people these days in this crazy world need forced just to sit still and just to wait, you know, and uh, you know the reaction that, that I got in playing the album there on Saturday night in the Belfast launch was that everybody just they said they came in and they just felt so much calmer by the time they left. And definitely that, you know, the space and the music um, has that impact on people. And I personally uh, love that and indulge in that. Hopefully not too much, but um, it, it it definitely sits very well with me as a, as a pianist. Yes, you mentioned there, in case people had forgotten, of course, you got fame so young in your career, becoming the BBC Young Musician of the Year back in uh, 1990. And previous to that, I think you had been the the, the RTE uh, Musician of the Future. Um, and then you had this wonderful concert pianist career, which really you, you you walked away from after a while, just just looking for, uh, I suppose, a break and, and then discovered new avenues to explore your music. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I imagine that anybody that uh, lives a, a very intense career in whichever field they're in, you know, reaches a point sometimes where you just have to take a little step, step back, step to the side, step away, whatever it is, for whatever reason. And you may not even know what, what that reason is at the time. I don't think I did, um, but it was a very, very important thing for me to be able to do. And then to come back and just question, so what, you know, what what music making do I want to make now in, in this different time of my life? You know, I was a young mum at the time and uh, maybe sitting for eight to ten hours um, a day at the piano just wasn't realistic for me. Um, I had a wonderful time as a young musician, you know, all the, the, the many years of, of the big concerts and travelling. Um, but to actually do that in your life every day, it's, you know, it takes a lot of sacrifice. So I'm I'm in a very, very happy place in, in my music making these days and, you know, doing projects like Aura. Um, it just makes me really glad that I have taken the time to actually, you know, just reflect on on music making in, in different ways. There's not just one way to be a musician. Um, so it's 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 been a good move for me. Well, the the classical music's loss is uh, traditional music's gain indeed, isn't it, Neil? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I was just, Kay, listening and uh, to, to Ruth there, and I, I want to say this. We're both busy professional musicians and, you know, you, you get through uh, lots of projects in your life and you do them and you move on, but not often do the planets align as immediately as they did for Ruth and I on this project there was something, it's it's that extra dimension that music has that, you know, when, when souls kind of meet and without, uh, you know, spoon feeding each other, we just knew really from the outset that there was something magical in, in our collaboration because we, we kind of think and feel about music uh, in the same way. And that doesn't happen too often in a life. So uh, it was very fortuitous, really, at one level. Um, uh, the serendipity of it was very rewarding. 
If we could go back to Boy in the Glen that we just heard mm. Ruth playing so magnificently there. You have a wonderful story about mm. this. Now, this is your composition. Is that right? This isn't, yes. this isn't mm. an arrangement of no, an no, old air. No, this is my, my own composition. The, 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 there are 10 tracks in the album. Nine are traditional airs. Even that word K, traditional, is, is misleading because what that really means is that they're just, we don't know the names of the composers because th- these beautiful airs <laughs> were composed and crafted and honed over generations and so on. But The Boy in the Glen, I, I wrote for my late friend, Liam O'Flynn, who towards the end of his life, Liam knew that he was dying and he would reflect on his childhood days. And Liam's father was from Kerry and they used to go on holidays there. We're talking now, okay, the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. And Liam, you know, would uh, towards the end of his life, I can still see as I'm talking, his eyes dancing in his head as he would talk about these glorious days when himself and his three siblings got into the sidecar. His father drove the motorbike and his mother rode pillion and they travelled from Kildare to West Kerry. Can you imagine the journey? But Liam told me that part of that journey every year was to stop at a magnificent place called Glan Nignalt, the the Glen of the Mad People between Tralee and Dingle. And Liam's father would tell them the lore of the Glen and uh, the watercress and the water that would cure people and so on in the Glen. So I, I made a visit to that place because I wanted to write a piece for Liam, not retrospectively after he had died, but I wanted to write something that he would hear. So I I wrote this piece and um, one day, a couple of months before Liam died, Paddy Glacken, the fiddle player, whom I'm sure you know, Kay. Indeed uh, we do, from this parish. From your parish. And Paddy and myself called in with Liam and his uh, wife Jane and Paddy played the air through uh, a few times. So it's an air that was very, very, is very important to me. And I felt that it would lend itself to that sense of space that you get in the Glen, that that would lend itself very well to a, a piano setting. That's and, a wonderful and I made story. that setting for Ruth, yeah. Um, let's have another track now. This is The Blue Hills of Antrim and it's a piece you've both collaborated on previously. Is that right, Ruth, with Northern Ireland Opera, I think? That's correct, yes. Um, it was dur- during lockdown and uh, uh, NI Opera um, were making different uh, stunning video footage actually of um, some songs and Neil was asked to write an arrangement of this for two, two singers, uh, myself on piano and himself on cello also. Um, so it's it's one of my favourite, favourite airs.
the Blue Hills of Antrim there, traditional air arranged by Neil Martin, played there by pianist Ruth McGinley from their album Aura. And my thanks to pianist Ruth McGinley and composer Neil Martin for joining us from our Belfast studio this evening ahead of the Dublin launch of that album Aura, taking part tomorrow at the Contemporary Music Centre on Fishamble Street in Dublin. To Galway now and a new exhibition at the Black Box Theatre. Persona is an interactive visual arts exhibition that explores the notion that there are hundreds of versions of ourselves out in the world because of how we are perceived by other individuals. Well, the exhibition explores this phenomenon through working with a group of people with intellectual disabilities by using costume, music and image. Persona wants to interrogate our ideas around perceived identities while celebrating an individual's dignity and worth. I'm joined by the creator, Martin Maguire, to tell us more. Martin, can you tell us more about that idea of perceived reality, the notion that there are loads of versions of us out there in the way people look at us? Hi, Kay. Yes, that was the starting point, really, for um, the conceptual idea behind persona. The notion that when we're, let's say for argument's sake, giving a speech, might be 100 people in, a, in the audience, that's 100 versions of us that's out there. And these are a hundred sort of mapped characters of us that aren't really within our control. And when I was thinking of that, I was thinking, well, these are often opaque barriers or layers, Kay, that are kind of populated by bias sometimes, preconceptions and assumptions. And that was the beginning point. I wanted to sort of see, well, you know, through my practice, which is a lens-based visual art practice, you know, how can we represent, how can we interrogate those layers that exist between people that are populated maybe by archetypal characters or that maybe have that preconceptions or assumptions that uh, we have of other people that are generated maybe sometimes in haste. Yes, and I mean, you give the example there of uh, of an auditorium and, and an audience, but obviously online it could be up in multiples of thousands when people are giving out their the, the image they have of themselves or the prepared image they have of themselves. It's, you know, the expansion of technology and the expansion of uh, the way we communicate as human beings has, you know, transmogrified, has so dramatically changed even in the last three to four years or the last five years, certainly. Um, So this was always a phenomenon going back since the beginning of mankind. Um, But yes, I mean, I agree, Kay, 100 percent. You know, now we're we're talking about literally thousands of fragments of uh, interpretations of us, the person. And then you have to consider, well, I can't place myself out in any of those. I can't dilute myself like that. Now, Um, you're working with Key Group on Persona Martin. Tell us about That's Life and the Radius Project. Yes, so That's Life is a um, an arts and personal development programme and they're under the auspices of the Brothers of Charity in Galway. And they work with uh, individuals with intellectual disability and give them opportunities to discover and, I suppose, realise artistic uh, their artistic potential. So... Um, that's Life and the Radius Project, um, you know, an arts-based project based here in Galway. They came to me just over a year ago and asked if I could conceptualise a new piece of work that would have, uh, that would involve members of their group. Um, 
and not only involve, but, you know, that would, that they would also be subjects of. So participants and subjects of. So it had that dual mandate. Um, so that was, that was, that, that was the beginning of it. And we started, we started over a year ago, Kay, and I met about 40 something, uh, you know, individuals. Um, and then through a series of physical workshops, etc., you know, we began to narrow it down and we came to our 10 core individuals, our 10 core participants that we've been working with that are uh, of the show and in the show and that have left their indelible mark on what's going to be visible in the black box come Friday morning. Now, you talked about archetypes earlier mm. and then I see that a Greek mythology, you're, you're kind of sourcing a lot of characters there. Is that right? Yes. So um, what kind of characters are, are, are you exploring? So when we were looking for a way in, when we were looking for a way to begin the exploration with our core, with our core group of people, um, we took this notion that, you know, part of what we populate in this idea of persona is, you know, we can often have these, um, you know, established characteristics or archetypes. So it's, it forms part of these sort of meta narratives or grand narratives. So then we said, well, let's push it. Let's go to the absolute extreme. And we and we took one of the uh, Greek creation myths, the primordial gods. And I suppose that's literally the beginning of this kind of meta-narrative structure that, you know, in the beginning there was darkness, out of darkness came chaos, out of chaos came nature, and then sprung the ten main primordial elements, which are, you know, air, day, night, underworld, darkness. And those are the elements, those are the key characters, even though they're not humanistic characters, they're not human formed, but they're, they're the key characters that are ten explored. All right. And so what what will people see on stage then? It is on stage, isn't it? Well, it's in well, it's in the black box, which mm-hmm. is um, a cavernous, uh, a cavernous it is. space. Um, <laughs> Try so, and fill that. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, we're working away. Um, and that suits thematically with what we were dealing with, which is a grand, grand narrative. Um, so, you know, it meant that the creative challenge of the black box space and we're using the full space. So we don't have raked seating. That's all taken away. We don't have a stage. So we, we just have the flat and, and we have the height as well. So, you know, everything like the, you know, the backdrops, um, we have a video wall that's at scale and the pieces themselves, what the audience will see, the spectators will see is they'll see 10 core pieces and these are photographic pieces and, um, you know, they're four metres by two metres each. So they are at scale and they have the ability then by the smart devices, Kay, that we'll provide for spectators. They have the ability to interact with these pieces. So in the space, both real and not real, even though you could argue about what's real and not real, but we will have photography, moving image, video, spoken word, soundscape, materiality, and elements of costume. So all of these things sit together, um, but some are in the augmented reality space and some are there real that you could almost touch. Right. And how have the participants enjoyed the the experience? Um, they have They have really taken to it. 
um, it really required, I, I mean, some of the elements, I'll give you an example. We had the moving image, the video element was we used a pretty unwielding uh, camera to shoot at a very high frame rate so we could have, you know, impossibly slow playback. And that would test any, you know, seasoned professional actor or physical performer. And uh, these guys managed all of that with aplomb. Three hour sessions in a bright studio, having to repeat minute gestures and movement. Gestures and movement, by the way, that they created. Um, you know, and at the end of some of these sessions, they were saying, let's keep, let's keep on trucking, let's keep on going. So they had energy, they had focus, they had drive and they had this amazing sense of play. So even um, though you've got your augmented reality and you've got screens, those participants are there all the time. Yes. So um, for the actual pieces that are there themselves, there's an there's, you know, the agency that these pieces have, you know, the hung pieces, the photography pieces, you know, they don't reveal everything. Um, the, you know, there's a there's a there's a block. There's layers that are waiting to be peeled back. It's through the process of interaction that you peel back those layers. And I suppose w- without ruining the sense of potential magic that may or may not be there, uh, you know, you get to see more and more of the layers of humanity. You know, through through the physiognomy of each individual and through this through the vocal performance, the sound, the essence of the human being that's behind each of these things. So, um, you know, through the process of interactivity, you, you know, you will discover more of the humanity in each one. Well, it sounds fascinating. Martin Maguire, thank you so much. Persona runs from the 4th to the 11th of November at the Black Box Theatre in Galway. More details at the THT It's just coming up to quarter to eight. Photographer and filmmaker Conor Horgan is perhaps best known for his film portrait of Panty Bliss, Rory O'Neill, the Queen of Ireland. Over the last two years, Conor has been concentrating on his first love, photography, travelling the country, capturing photos from he, for his latest exhibition, Post State. During lockdown, Connor visited our empty towns and streets, imagining what Ireland would be like if the state had indeed collapsed. The exhibition evokes a world ravaged by climate change and asks our nation states capable of tackling this global crisis. The exhibition is currently running at the Ashford Gallery at the Royal Hibernian Academy and it runs until November the 13th. And to look at what we can expect, I'm delighted to be joined by Connor. Connor, I was in the gallery today and um, the photographs are very observed details. Sometimes you are looking at detail of a bigger landscape. Can you just bring us into the exhibition? Well, as you said, I managed to, I actually got a couple of jobs working on film sets, uh, which got me the wherewithal to travel across the country during the lockdown as an essential worker. And I went down all these tiny little boreens looking for these photographs. Uh, I'd, I'd spent some time living in Paris and I came back. I wanted to make, to do a photographic project about Ireland. Most of my work up until then had always centred around people. So this was very much a kind of new development for me to go out and to find landscapes, to find these found objects. Very, very quickly, I started to notice kind of similar colours to the Irish flag, which got me thinking about the Irish nation, which then got me thinking about nations and states 
uh, all of them actually. So I started really thinking about, you know, are states the best thing to deal with the oncoming climate crisis? And I suspect that they are almost certainly not, unfortunately. So was the climate crisis writ large in what you were looking for as well? I think it was. The other kind of eureka moment that I had somewhere, you know, in, probably in the Midlands driving in my 20-year-old car was thinking, you know, these pictures don't have to be documentary. They can be glimpses into a possible future. They can represent something that is on the way or that is potentially kind of knocking at our door rather than something that is happening right now. So they don't have to be literal in that sense. And they're not documentary. They're kind of, um, though they are of real places and of real things, they're representing something else. Yes, and they are in no way staged. These are the places and the things that you photographed as you found them. There is one photograph that has a person in it. And that person is sitting on uh, an abandoned leather couch in the middle of the woods uh, just outside uh, the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in Anna McCarrick, which is an artist's retreat centre. I was in, in February 2020, just as the lockdown was looming. And I came across this uh, sofa. I remember taking a picture of it on my phone and showing it to one of the, the chefs in the centre. And she was very upset. She said, I know whose sofa that is. I'm going to give out to them for leaving it there. Um, but there was also uh, an artist on residency at the time with uh, beautiful long orange hair, uh, Roshina Sullivan from Cork. And she came and sat on the couch, which actually just made the picture. And she's the only actual person in, in the in the exhibition. She also came up from Cork for the opening, which was great. It was great to see her again. I gave her a print of the image for uh, yes. her trouble. So you picked out there orange hair or red hair, as we uh, as we sometimes call it. Sure. And obviously, orange is on our flag. And then there are many photographs that have green and white and gold, the, the tricolour. Did you just see this after a while? Did you say, well, there's a, obviously there's a lot of green in Ireland and, sure. and, and, and maybe uh, signage might throw up a lot of white. But to get the three colours together. Well, well, I wanted the pictures to be kind of um, not to be, as I said, not to be literal, but to be representative of something. And all of the pictures, they, they only found their way into up onto the wall of the exhibition if they were working for me on a number of different levels and some of that was that they may kind of feature the colours of the Irish flag. I have developed a kind of peripheral vision to these three colours that I hope will leave me at some point because I don't spend the rest of my life twitching every time I drive past something that has orange, white and green in it. There was one picture in particular which was an, of an old hoarding which I did. I was stuck in dreadful traffic behind a tractor for a long old time somewhere south of Kilkenny and I drove past this hoarding that had the, had been painted at one stage green and then had a white panel and there was a bit of orange on it as well and I nearly crashed the car. I can imagine. Well, uh, we can tweet that image. This is uh, flag number six, isn't that's that the, right? Now, one. each one of the images, we should say, is called flag because obviously it, it hints or at the, the tricolour. Well, actually, it's more than that. Um, more because I wanted the images to be flags as in warning flags or to flag something for your attention. So whilst there's obviously the meaning of it being the national flag, it's more the fact that these are flags to be seen as potential warnings. So we're tweeting out these images at RTE Arena on Twitter if you want to 
check that out on your phone or your device. So let's talk a little bit. You're you're driving along and you see this edifice just near Kilkenny. Can you describe it for for our viewers and those on Twitter? It is an abandoned or a, a disused hoarding, which I imagine had posters on it. It looks like it didn't have kind of big, glossy advertising posters on it. It probably might have had local posters up for, you know, horse fairs or something or whatever, but it has not been used for some time. So the fact that it has fallen into disuse and it has this kind of patina of uh, the edges of it are decaying and starting to kind of uh, crumble is what gives it, I think, the the right kind of atmosphere because I want these pictures to to give the viewer a feeling. And there is an intensity when you walk into the room. There's quite a lot of pictures in that gallery space. There are 28 different images. And when you walk in, we've actually put some vinyls up on the far wall so that they're kind of set against uh, another level, not just white wall. And, you know, I'm really glad when people are reporting back to me that they walk into the room and they kind of, they take a breath, you know, it kind of, it stops them in their tracks, you know. And then as they develop, there is a narrative to the to the images and it does go around the wall in, in a kind of counterclockwise fashion. The later images are quieter and calmer and there's a lot of white in them and there's a lot less kind of saturated colour. But, you know, and I am calling good. it post-state then, Connor. I mean, it does th- do you believe that the climate crisis is so is so big so that the, the nation state can't possibly take action? Or is it that they, they're not taking action and you're waving warning flags for them? Well, I th- well the, one of the things, you know, when we think in a, in a kind of a nice and optimistic way about the state, we think, well, this is what the flag that we are all united underneath this flag. But all the other people are excluded from uniting underneath that particular flag. So all states are in competition with all other states. And that is just the simple fact of it. And as long, and, you know, the village of Barna Hinch is not a state, but it's a tribe. And all states are tribes and NATO is a tribe, you know, so all of these kind of actually arbitrary collections of humanity, as long as they are opposed to each other and fighting for resources and not cooperating, the chances of us dealing with this crisis are greatly reduced. Okay, let's look at another image and we'll tweet this image at RTE Arena. This is flag number nine and this one is from North Galway, South Mayo. I can't remember exactly where. <laughs> oh, it's you're not sure. It's, oh, no, I get I'm not you. Sure. Yeah. You were just I, flying along I, doing well, I, your I was, essential driving. I was, I was, I think I was coming back from a, a job in, in Connemara and I went all the way up into Sligo on my way back to Dublin. I was making sure on that trip I could cover as much ground as possible. And, the, you know, it, I just came across this amazing kind of almost blood orange red wall with an empty... It could be a notice board in the middle of it. But what that said to me when I first started looking at it, and often when I found these things, I would just kind of instinctively respond and I'd jump out of the car and I'd start taking pictures. And sometimes it would be months later I'd be looking at it and I'd realise what it was that had kind of had tweaked me in such a way. This one in particular, you know, because I'm making art and I'm working as an artist and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, you know, the fact that the current kind of state of the arts in this country is largely supported by our society and our state. And we're able, you know, art is a wonderful thing. It's such a valuable um, part of all of our lives, but it is fundamentally useless. And when things, if, if things get really, really difficult, 
there will be no way that less of a society can support the kind of complex art that we currently have. And I think that that would be a terrible pity. Right. So would you be somebody now who would stick your head to the wall or throw soup at a work of art (laughs) in protest about lack of action for climate change? You know, if I thought it would make a difference, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Even your own exhibition. Absolutely. Well, yes, it's OK. They're covered in glass. That'd be all right. <laughs> so we, we'll tweet the next image, which is the girl with the orange hair against the sofa. But we've talked about that. And sure. we might move on to image. This is flag number 87. I think you know you're in North Mayo here. Yes, um, that's kind of just near Ballina, actually, just kind of north of Ballina. And what I particularly love about that is that there's such a hard border between the built environment and the natural part of the world. And the built environment there is a fairly fresh looking road with some very kind of clean and and, and unscuffed white paint on, on, on the tarmac. But the forest is old and deep. And the forest, if these two things come into conflict with each other, ultimately the forest will win. Yes, you do play a lot with, let's say, heavy bollards, heavy those heavy stone bollards. I don't know if you call them bollards when they're stone or coming to the end, almost, you know, a dead end. Obviously, you're, you're using the image to metaphorically. Sure. Um, well, I think... Uh, barriers were certainly things that I was drawn to photograph when I was thinking about this. And and part of the great thing about just the driving around and looking for pictures is that most of the time I wasn't finding pictures, but all of the time I was thinking about what I was doing. So the development and the thought process and just kind of having these kind of eureka moments where I go, actually, no, I can do this. And it's, it's more about that than it is about the other. All of these things were just it was vital to get away from the computer, actually, and just to be out there in the world. Um, and that's where I started photographing a lot of barriers. And uh, some of them made their way into, into the work in, or, uh, that is up on, on, on and, the walls. And then every now and again, you were thrown a bit of magic, like uh, I, it's flag number 52. And it's just this orange sculpture that's almost, you know, just there waiting for you to take a photograph of. It's it's a small, it's a bit of a twisted, rusted girder in an abandoned boatyard in Baltimore, West Cork. I was down working on my friend Michael Canarns' film, doing some pictures for him, and I came across this and it felt, it felt like a statue. It felt like a bust as well. I immediately started thinking about Ozymandias, look upon my work in despair, um, because it is, you know, Potentially, you could look at that and say it is like it has a human feel to it, but quite a sad one. There's a downcast feel to it. And uh, I just absolutely love that. And do you think sometimes, uh, obviously, it's your eye, but do you feel that, that the landscape is telling us something? The way these these strange objects and the, the way bollards and, and signage and everything throw up these kind of incongruous mixes for us to try and make sense of. I think it is if you're looking at it in the right way. There's another image that I don't want to finish without going into. This is flag number 45 and it's an intricate wall. It's it's a it's a kind of breeze block wall or a small well actually not big as big as breeze block but it's a brick wall painted white taken at the back of an abandoned and uh, boarded up bungalow somewhere south of Navan. And this 
I worked with this for ages and ages. It's just, it's really good, just got these two elements. There is the kind of conflict between the built world and and the very lush greenery of the forest and and the grass beyond it. I couldn't get it to work. I couldn't get it to work, and I was just kind of kind of banging my head off the computer until eventually one morning I just flipped it ninety degrees, and suddenly. It works. And through the the uh, apertures in the between the breeze blocks, you can get this vista of greenness peeping yes. out. Yes, it's it's fantastic. Yes, I, after I took the rest of the day off after that. I was so, so my happy, work happy is done. <laughs> my work is done, you said. Well, my thanks to Conor Horgan for coming in this evening. His exhibition Post Date is currently running at the Ashford Gallery at the Royal Hibernian Academy. And that runs until November the 13th. Conor, thank you very much.